Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Happy holidays and welcome to another episode of The Europhile. For our last episode of the year, we're going to first talk about the European Council meeting and the smoke is now cleared on what was a very eventful December summit. We will break it down. Then we will turn and reflect on uh, some of the key events and trends from the past year and talk about what they may portend for the year ahead in 2024. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, let's start with this European Council summit in Brussels last week. Lots happened. I think the top line for everyone was really that Ukraine's accession negotiations have officially been open, along with Moldova. And this is a huge sign of support for Ukraine. I think it was a really important political sign. However, other things didn't quite pan out. So on the one hand, Ukraine did get the official opening of the talks. On the other, leaders could not agree on the 50 billion euros or $55 billion uh, aid package that's becoming increasingly crucial for Ukraine to maintain its efforts against Russia, especially as we see on the U.S. side, nothing has been decided either. So what, what do you make of this particular Ukraine conversation, Max? So I think the summit uh, was geared up to be the showdown between the EU and Viktor Orban. The great confrontation was going was gonna to happen at the summit, and that's not actually really what happened. Uh, in some ways, this was a very kind of typical summit when it comes to Orban, that Orban was able to uh, get 10 billion euros from the EU that were released, that were being held. From the European Commission's perspective, well, the Hungarians took some steps that that they had requested and, and some change, some some rules. And and so so, you know, the Hungarians had checked the box and now we could release the funding as sort of good technocrats. I think for most that uh, study EU law, uh, including our own Dan Kellerman, and I suggest everyone go back and listen to the interview that we did with him last week, looked at this sort of in horror that, no, the Hungarians had done some window dressing and the EU shouldn't have released this money but they released 10 billion. Now they're still holding about another 10 billion. And that uh, appeared to sort of slightly shift Orban's stance. During the actual council summit, there was the the great bathroom or coffee break where Olaf Scholz, uh, the German chancellor, as the Hungarians were objecting to moving forward on opening ascension and negotiations with Ukraine, Olaf Scholz said, well, you know, why don't you t- take a break, Victor? And he gets up and he leaves. And then the 26 members then just sort of go forth. And it makes me wonder, like, well, shouldn't we be you know, giving Orban, you know, all the drinks that he can have or some sort of diuretic so he has to go to the bathroom all the time? <laughs> that, that would be quite a strategy <laughs> for summits. So on the one hand, OK, great. They sort of fudged it. Ukraine talks have opened. This was, I think, a, a, an important signal. On the other hand, they didn't pass the money. And the money is really important. Now, the EU leaders are very confident that they'll still be able to get this money through. Um, There's just been an announcement from Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, that on February 1st, the EU will hold another summit, at which point they will talk about this funding again. And EU leaders, I think the Irish prime minister, for instance, just came out and said, well, we're prepared. All of 
26 of us to basically just create uh, a $55 billion fund or 50 billion uh, euro fund for Ukraine, sort of off the books, without Hungary, without needing the unanimity. And so they seem confident that they're going to get the money. On the other hand, this whole confrontation with Hungary still needs to happen because at every step of the way of the enlargement process, if Ukraine is going to make progress, well, the Hungarians will have a vote, will have an ability to block it. And maybe Orban will just keep going to the bathroom. But uh, it doesn't appear to be a, a real solution. And I think this, this, I think, was in some ways a very disappointing council summit because they didn't resolve the money. They didn't really resolve the issue with Hungary. And they sort of, you know, the EU leaders blinked and didn't really want to have a confrontation that clearly looks like it needs to, needs to happen. And the strategy going forward can't just be, as you said, Victor, take a break. It's it's not it's not sustainable. Also, because we've seen over multiple summits that Orban is going to keep asking for more. It's not that you placated him for the one time, so now he's done being a problematic actor. This is this is just going to keep going. We saw. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics at play coming into the summit from complicated German budget negotiations, there's a lot of reticence around adding money in the European peace facility. And the Bulgarian prime minister admitted that they did away with a tax on gas, Russian gas transit through Bulgaria because Hungarian officials said, we'll keep vetoing your Schengen area approval if you don't get rid of this tax. So they're going to keep using leverage everywhere they have it And it, it's not a great signal to send for the commission or anybody in Brussels to say, we'll just keep giving him a little more. He's, it's never going to be enough. I think the, sig the, the, the symbolism, too, of him saying, fine, I'll take a break for the accession talks, which is mostly symbolic. It's not that tangible. But I'll put my foot down for the money just after this, which really undercuts the sense of victory for accession talks is the biggest sign. He's not going to stop doing things like that. And the more he continues, the more there's a risk that others will jump on board. I mean, we saw Prime Minister Maloney from Italy was also not super on board for the particular budget negotiations that were ongoing. So it's not just about him either. There needs to be a real conversation about how we get more members on board for these really big decisions because there's going to be more big decisions coming, especially as we look toward important decisions on EU reform, so that it it's better prepared for enlargement. I don't see how we get away from that. Look, I, I think Hungary right now is this, is a is a cancer on the European Union, and it looks like it's sort of metastasizing. And I think this was actually a prime moment to confront Hungary over an issue that is widely popular in support of Ukraine uh, within the European Union. And you have a, a certain political moment where, yes, uh, there's been an election in the Netherlands that has elected, you know, the uh, far right Gert Wilders uh, looks, you know, uh, is, is, in, is in position to potentially create a government, but he hasn't created one yet. So you have this kind of moment where you don't have the government in the Netherlands. You still have Mark Rutte, who is prime minister. And while you have uh, a, a Slovakian uh, prime minister that may be somewhat aligned, is not really. It's, it doesn't look like he's going to really stick out his neck uh, on behalf of Hungary. 
uh, you know, two nationalists that border each other tend to not always get along. And you've just had Polish elections. So this was sort of a moment, I think, to confront Orban ahead of the European parliamentary elections. Because I think what Orban is sort of counting on now by being more disruptive is that his hope is that this kind of far-right ideological view will, will gain uh, a, a foothold, a bigger foothold within the European Parliament, and that will sort of protect him. What we have to re- remember here is that the EU funding is basically enabling Orban's kleptocracy. It's an authoritarian government that isn't re- that you know Orban uses the EU money to pay off benefactors. So the EU is directly enabling uh, the stability of the Orban regime, and it has the ability to confront it, but it has to take action. It has to take action also collectively as 26 other countries to then respond and perhaps do uh, an Article 7, which which we talked about in the previous episode with the interview with Dan Kellerman, or take other steps that, that, that Dan outlined. But the EU is just sort of not doing that in releasing sort of half of what they were holding back to get almost nothing in return strikes me as is the the situation is somewhat broken. And it was fairly depressing way, I think, to kind of end the year. Yeah, it's it wasn't great, let's say. I, I'm curious to see if this this was enough of a shock for the commission to say, okay, well, we gave them a little bit by pretending that they made the right judicial reforms that we wanted, which really is mostly cosmetic, and we got very little for it. So maybe they thought it was worth it. I, to be clear, we need to make sure that the commission, make sure to say that the commission insists it wasn't a quid pro quo, that they were going to release this money anyway. The timing is interesting at best, but let's say maybe they thought it was a worth, like a trade-off that was worth it. That accession talks by themselves, that was the symbol they wanted to get out of him this time. And at the February 1st summit, extraordinary summit or informal leaders meeting, whatever they're calling it, then that's where really that's really where they put their foot down. Because realistically, there's not going to be a new Dutch government by then. I, I would be shocked, let's say, if that's done by then. So Ruta would probably be at the table. The Polish prime minister is now in place, so that's not going to change. So maybe that's what they're looking at. It's like this one, we, we just took one for the team. We wanted the symbol. We wanted it for Moldova as well, and we'll do the money later. And we can come in in February having had probably preliminary preliminary talks on this intergovernmental agreement among 26 for money for Ukraine. Yeah, I think on that, there is a, it is more bureaucratically complicated to, to create this funding for Ukraine sort of off the EU books. And so I think that probably will be, uh, they'll figure out how to kind of do that in January. And it wouldn't actually shock me if Orban, you know, after everyone has to spend January trying to figure out how to you know, do this other step, then Orban just sort of caves and lets the money money go. I do. It is worth noting that the EU did also approve a 12 sanctions package, which hits sort of Russian diamonds and no re, re-export it to Russia of sense of goods and technology. And there's new individuals and organizations mm-hmm. sanctioned. And so I think, you know, there were good things, I think, accomplished that the EU did um, yeah. do quite a lot. They also, uh, you know, I think when it comes to the broader effort of EU reform, I don't think as much sort of progress uh, occurred that uh, that that's needed, that in in some ways they move forward on enlargement for Ukraine. But the hard part of reforming the EU before it enlarges 
those talks still appear to be in really their kind of infant stages. And I don't think anyone is taking those as seriously as they need to be. No, when you read the the council conclusions, it's basically we agree to talk about this again to get a roadmap to start the work by summer 2024. That's roughly what they're targeting. That I put the reforms for enlargement in the category of honorable mentions in the conclusions. Obviously, it wasn't in the room, so can't tell how much they talked about it. I think at the same time, it's really important to highlight that they are talking about it. There really has been, and we can talk about this a little bit later when you talk about 2023, a sea change in the conversation in Brussels around necessary reforms for enlargement. But it's not a surprise to me that they didn't spend that much time on it this time. This wasn't the main point of this. This one was really on Ukraine, on other enlargement priorities, defense to some extent. And here we saw they talked about reforms. Um, there's other potential candidates, that, candidate countries that were mentioned. Bosnia, Georgia was granted candidate status. And our colleague, Tina Dolbaya, was incredibly happy. I have to say, seeing her enthusiasm made me think, oh, EU enlargement can spur this kind of public enthusiasm still in other places. And I think that's something that EU leaders should really keep in mind. North Macedonia is still inching towards towards that target. But it just wasn't as important, I think, or as visible as Ukraine, really. Um, they talked about other things to integrated market for defense, climate, migration, but that wasn't the top line. I guess to just maybe conclude this sort of segment on the European Council, it, it does strike me that momentum has sort of been lost inside uh, of the EU when it comes to um, Ukraine, when it comes to kind of the transformative reforms that are probably needed to kind of advance enlargement, not just for Ukraine, but for others. You know, the EU is going to have to reform itself. It does that every, before any enlargement, there's always an EU reform effort. And that never really got off the ground in, in 2022. I think Eastern European countries were, were largely at fault and still probably are the obstacles because they, you know, don't want to see, you know, QMV on foreign policy. I, I, that's going to majority voting on foreign policy and, and are resistant to a lot of the reforms that Western European countries like France and others are going to need to see the EU enlarge. And, and I, I sort of feel this kind of loss of momentum. And I think also economically, the EU is sort of feeling the effects of the high energy prices now in, in year two. And sort of the EU is kind of reverting back to kind of the austerity approaches. Uh, there's negotiations this week at the European Council between European foreign ministers, ECOFIN, uh, about you know how they're going to reimpose the stability and growth pact whether that will be reformed or sort of look the way it was before COVID. And that's going to require countries to focus on cutting on budget deficits again. And there's an economic logic for that. There's also an economic logic that says a lot more money needs to be spent on things like defense and the energy transition. So I feel like there, some momentum has sort of been lost and the EU is sort of stuck now, you know, will sort of be stuck in place for the next, you know, basically through 2024, because if we turn to look ahead, we're going to have six months until the European parliamentary elections. I don't think we can expect a lot to happen. And then we'll see the, what happens in those elections. And, you know, that will sort of help chart the course of the EU, not just for the, the rest of the year, but for the next few years. But maybe it's time to sort of look back and reflect on 
2023 and what we think it sort of pretends uh, for going forward. Well, I think your last point was a perfect segue to that because there's been a loss of momentum. But when you look at the trajectory, not just of 2023, but also 2022 before, it is understandable that there's just everyone's running out of steam on the political capital necessary to make big decisions, big transitions. I feel like 2023 to me was a lot of ups and downs for EU unity, integration, and on top of that, successive crises that they had to deal with. I mean, straight coming out of COVID, Russia's war in Ukraine starts in February 2022 when we're not quite done really grappling with the effects of COVID on the economy, on people. So you're hurtling into that. And then this year, looking at the positive record, really for me, it was Ukraine. There's, we've seen a lot of unity continuing up until now, but still, it's a, considering it's 27 member states, I think that's that's pretty remarkable. Uh, the unity on some economic decisions and responses, for example, to the IRA coming out of the U.S., uh, climate goals were still pretty sturdy, separate from some rumblings on the the right wing uh, in the European Parliament. Tech legislation has been moving at a fast clip. And big point for me was Poland. These are all good news, um, pieces of good news. This shows that there was a lot of movement. On, I think, files that are so-so, 2023 for me is migration. Really not a lot of progress there, just continuing to muddle through with some problematic deals with neighboring countries, defense ups and downs a lot. There's a lot of rhetorical support for united defense position and procurement. And obviously you can talk about that a lot better than I can. On China, lots of mixed signals across across the block. Reform we've already talked about. And then rule of law. I mean, some places have done better. Others were just continuing to, to go downward in a downward spiral. For example, the elections in Slovakia, that's that's not good news. And then on the not so positive side for me is really the resurgence of far right and nationalist movements across Europe that we're seeing now. And we can talk about 2024 and some questions around the EU's role on the global stage. Some of the decisions that have been made, I think, are not shining a very positive light on the block and its ability to make strong statements about certain things that are happening. And last piece before I let you talk is one thing that is big question mark is Brexit. Completely receded to the background, which is kind of understandable because a lot of other things have been happening, but it's not entirely resolved. There's still, I mean, the DUP is making some uh, some blockages with some laws that need to be passed in the UK for things to really be final, but we haven't talked about it at all. I mean, we have, you and I, but I feel like that's just not in the news at all. And the UK itself is kind of a secondary actor, it feels like, in a lot of these in a lot of these dynamics. But how do you see the year that just passed? Yeah. Well, maybe just on Brexit, I feel like in the UK that Brexit's sort of been resolved. <laughs> and the, the consensus now is, God, this was a terrible mistake. But there is the solution isn't that we just sort of try to rejoin the EU. But I think there's going to be clear momentum. Uh, in a likely new Labour government in 2024 to really rebuild ties with the EU. And what's interesting is that is going to focus on defence. It's going to focus on uh, EU defence and including the UK, I think, in those efforts, much the way that Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac at uh, Saint-Malo and, uh, and uh, you know, 25 years ago, this month in December of 1998, sort of had this 
path-breaking agreement. And I think that's where labor, the new labor government will try to uh, expand UK cooperation with the EU and that defense will sort of be the major focus. But when I look back on the year, you know, there were elections in our producer Otto uh, uh, has written this out for us, but in the Czech Republic, Estonia, Netherlands, twice they had regional elections in March and then parliamentary in November, Finland, Bulgaria, Turkey, Greece, Spain had two elections, Slovakia uh, and Poland. And I think the clear lesson from all these elections is that Europe is headed in. Actually, I don't think there is a clear lesson. from. from <laughs> it's headed from... in multiple directions, yes, depending on the country. <laughs> I think there's multiple trends. There's multiple themes. I think, you know, if an election is about migration and, and immigration and, and asylum, uh, as it was in the, the Netherlands, then that's likely going to benefit the far right. I think in Spain, you saw two elections. Yeah, one that was like, you know, this emergence of the far right, and then quickly everyone sort of wanting to take that back. And what I think has to be seen as a very brilliant electoral move by Pedro Sanchez, uh, by immediately calling snap elections after they had regional elections where uh, he didn't, his party didn't do so well, uh, and then came back and somehow managed to still remain as Spanish prime minister. You know, we've talked about the, the controversial uh, asylum legislation that he did for 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 uh, Catalan nationalists, but he's still prime minister in Greece. We saw also Mitsotakis, you know, the Greek economy is doing quite well, and as a center right uh, politician, won handily. And Greece appears to be headed, I think, in a very sort of positive direction economically. And then in Poland, here was like I think probably the most important election, at least for the European Union. And because an election that I think where democracy was really on the ballot and the future of the EU was on the ballot and uh, and it came up that the opposition uh, won. But then you have elections like Slovakia, where, you know, a return to sort of the far right, obviously the Dutch elections that we had recently. The trend line here to me is just not very clear. And I think what we see is actually a fairly volatile European politics where I think voters are voting on things that are maybe anti-incumbent on certain issues. Uh, you know, inflation has been high, energy prices have been high. And I think this creates a really muddled picture as we go into the European parliamentary elections, which I think we're going to do a lot more on in the coming year. But these elections tend to oftentimes be driven by national issues. But what strikes me is that, is there going to be a broader European theme to this election it's not quite clear what that will be, um, but I think that's something to look out for. I think the other big thing you know, I would say, uh, and I think this has sort of faded in the last few months of the, the year, just given that Gaza has sort of been front and center, and that's been, I think, the continued emergence of the EU as a major geopolitical player. I think Gaza has sort of complicated this uh, narrative that I think was very clear probably up until October 7th. Um, because the EU has had a very muddled position and not been quite impactful when it comes to Israel-Palestine. I don't think that's a big shock. We've talked about this, that, you know, the Israel, it doesn't have, or, or it, the EU doesn't have hard power, and the Middle East is a hard power region where hard power really plays. So if you don't have it, you're not going to be a much of an actor. But what I, I have seen is that the relationship between von der Leyen and Biden has been incredibly strong. And I've heard officials note that from in Washington that feels like the that age old question that uh, Henry Kissinger, you know, formerly of CSIS, 
uh, has not had an office down the hall, would ask about Europe, said we, we don't know who to call when we want to call Europe. Well, the White House was calling Ursula von der Leyen in the EU. And I think that's a really important development. And we saw all the tensions coming into this year over the Inflation Reduction Act that von der Leyen and others, they sort of work through it. Now, I think it's fair to say that USEU Trade and Technology Council has not had the kind of massive breakthroughs that were hoped for. There's set to be a new, another a round of, uh, of discussions uh, in the new year. But I do think the broader trend line in USEU relations and the appreciation of the importance of the EU, the US sort of adopting the term de-risking uh, when it comes to China, uh, which, was, which was a von der Leyen phrase about economic security and, and addressing China, have been quite significant. And sometimes we don't notice the kind of gradual changes that have occurred over the course of a year. But I do think that, that uh, there's been a big shift in how Washington sort of perceives of the European Union, uh, in part due to the relationship that's been established there. I think that's that's a really good point to bring forward. And as I told you the other day, my father think, thinks I'm not optimistic enough about the EU and I should follow your lead a little more. So I will choose to adopt that position as well, that it was in the background, but there have been significant movements, at least on the transatlantic relation between Washington and Brussels. That's that's a big one. But I think maybe looking forward to 2024, based on all these different dynamics and trends that we're, that we're seeing, for on my end, priorities that I think should be top of the list for EU leaders is really this Ukraine funding that's going to come up pretty early in the year. And more broadly, just revisions of the EU budget, the MFF, because there's a lot of priorities they're trying to fund at the same time. And we all know it's not necessarily doable unless they make a big decision on different spending models. The work on e-reform has to start. This mention that they make in the conclusions of a roadmap for future work by summer 2024, that has to happen. They have to at least put something on paper to say, okay, we're going to start moving forward in a certain direction. Defense procurement, when we talk about the EU on the global stage and hard power, they need to put their money where their mouth is. And that also comes through defense procurement and then rule of law, at least for me. Like As we were talking about, if if they don't stand up to people like Orban, then they're not living up to the values that are in the treaties. They're just going to get their lunch money taken again and again by people like him. And he's stand, setting a really problematic precedent for others that might come after him, next to him, in parallel at uh, other EU councils. Second order priorities, I would say, is really trade with the U.S. There's some things that are not resolved still, but is really important, especially when we think about the relationship with China. Some of these things need to be figured out. Some EU members need to clarify their position on this because calling it a competitor and a partner on other things, it's, it's okay to have a nuanced position, but it's nuanced across the 27 members, not one position that's nuanced. Uh, and then on climate, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Targets for 2030 are looking okay, but not across the board. So those are priorities I see for, for the EU in the coming year. What about you? Yeah, I think, I guess I would point to maybe three big things that I think uh, will really shape the year. I think, number one, I do think that the new Polish government will come in and have uh, a lot of energy at the European level. There's been a lot of talk of power shifting eastward in response to the war in Ukraine. And I think a lot of moral authority has shifted eastward. But there hasn't been a lot of direction, I would say, from 
the eastern part of the EU on what what they actually want the EU to do. We've seen a little bit from Estonia when it comes to uh, them putting out ideas for the EU to start procuring ammunition. That's a, a, a big new pathway. But I think the new Polish government will will view themselves as in some ways saving uh, Poland's uh, presence in the EU, but also wanting a much stronger EU. Donald Tusk was president of the European Council. And and I also think when you look at, at France and Macron, not really being able to move much on a domestic agenda. I think this is where, you know, we see this all the time in the U.S., where the second term of an administration tends to really be when they focus on foreign policy because it can't get done much done domestically. And I think there will be a lot of close relations, I think, between Paris and Warsaw and then somewhat Berlin, too, to try. But it will really be Paris and Warsaw working together and then just trying to move Berlin to do something. Uh, and I think this is gets to, I think, one of the major challenges, which is Berlin, which is the German coalition is entering 2024, I think, in a disastrous state where they kind of feel like they're in a suicide pact, where the coalition's not working for any party. But if any party leaves it, then they're going to, you know, no one wants to face the voters right now. They're now stuck in this kind of austerity trap because of this godforsaken uh, debt break. And it doesn't really appear that there's like a clear way out of this. And Germany isn't really showing any leadership on the EU level. They're now opposing the European peace facility and increasing those funds. So I, I think Germany is a real problem, but that's where I think Poland and France will try to work around them. But that gets to the other big, I think, issue, and that's Ukraine, and that's the state of the war. And that's really gets to the state of U.S., whether the U.S. continues to fund Ukraine. And I think this is the big kind of crisis that I think will confront Europe very early on in January, where I think it's going to become pretty clear that if Congress can't get its act together, and right now, I would say I don't expect them to. The Senate has just announced that it's not going to have anything to vote on before the end of the year, uh, which means that this kind of Ukraine supplemental funding, which is absolutely vital to Ukraine in terms of providing them with the munitions uh, to fight Russia, but also air defense munitions to defend their cities, is not going to happen. And it looks increasingly, I think, unlikely that there's going to be a breakthrough on immigration, which has now been tied to Ukraine funding. And they have to keep the government open in January. So I don't know if Ukraine funding happens. And this is where I think it suddenly may dawn on Europe that Ukraine might lose this war and that the U.S. isn't has sort of stepped away. They're not waiting for Trump to, to win in, in November of 2024. It's happening already because of the Republicans in Congress. And Europe will need to act. Now, Europe doesn't have quite the ability to just fill the gap left by the United States. But what it's proposing with its funding isn't enough. And it's not actually, Europe has not actually acted strong enough to really ramp up its defense in industrial production. And so there's a lot more money that needs to be thrown at this problem. And that, I think, may uh, really occupy leaders. And of course, the third issue is going to be not just the European elections, but the U.S. election. And I think that will preoccupy Europe um, really heading into November. And if Europe is forged in crisis, well, the Ukraine crisis uh, may become more acute and may prompt Europe to act. But if, if the election goes uh, toward uh, Donald Trump, and if Donald Trump is reelected, I think that will prompt a, a real re rethinking of where where Europe is on a lot of these issues. For sure. I mean, I, I would think or I would hope that they'd learn 
lessons from the first Trump term, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, just it was not a good time for transatlantic relations. And it laid the groundwork for some shifts in European spending on defense, for example, although not nearly as much as Ukraine war did. But hopefully those muscles can be reactivated and they can think, okay, we know what that was like. I think in 2016, there was still some level of naivete around what that would look like from the U.S. side. Whereas this time, even as you said, it's not even by the time the election comes around. It's now they're seeing what's happening in Congress and the funding. I mean, yes, the Senate is working on something, but the House is not here anyway. They all went to recess, so they can't vote. And there's two actually shut down horizons. There's one in January, and then there's the second half in February. So we're just in constant shutdown, shutdown avoidance mode, which creates so much instability on our side here in the U.S., but also for the for Europeans, because Europeans watch U.S. elections very, very closely. I mean, the last time this happened, I had friends who were tuned into whatever district in the middle of Pennsylvania. And these are people who don't understand the difference between the European Council and the Parliament. So it's it's very it's caught it's watched very closely. But that's I think that's a good for me. That's really what's on the horizon for 2024, separate from priorities and trends. It's really European elections are going to be shaping a lot of the debates. And as you said, a lot of these races are fought at the national level, but that really depends on the representatives and the MEPs and whether they decide to make it an EU campaign or not. Some will, sometimes because they want to rail against the EU and use that to get elected. Uh, but some, who knows, they might they might make uh, a real push. I'll be curious to see also just if the Spitzenkandidat uh, system is respected as well for the next president of the commission. We saw some fudging last time in 2019. So we'll see. Um, to me, that's also just a bigger challenge is bringing European publics on board for those lofty ambitions. Like how do you craft a message that is that that resonates with people, a positive message about the EU and not just what the EU is doing that, you know, national politicians don't like. The German landscape as always, I think, as you said, will continue to be a problem. But then to me, I'm also watching instability around. It's not just Ukraine. Um, there's a lot. I mean, this Israel-Gaza situation is not going to stop, I think, anytime soon. So much instability in the Sahel is continuing. And that's something that at some point, European leaders are going to have to get their attention back to that, especially if they keep worrying so much about migration. Like They have to focus on this particular area. And then who knows, like maybe Taiwan is having elections in January. So we could be looking at more surprises that really shake everything once again, could could change a lot of positions in Europe. So there's priorities, there's different trends, and then there's all the surprises that can, that can come on top. Uh, on a happier note, well, that also means there's a lot for us to talk about on our podcast uh, into 2024. It has been a, a great year. Uh, with you, Donetian, launching this podcast, uh, and we are uh, going to head in strong into into twenty twenty four. Yes, thank thank you so much for being an awesome co host for all the rants, because that really spices up my Mondays when we get to to listen to to whatever rant you have for us during that day. So, really, a banner year for all of us and for Europe. Yeah, we will keep the rants coming into twenty twenty four. I have no doubt.
And that's it for today's episode and for 2023. Uh, from all of us at CSIS and in the Europe, Russia, Eurasia program, we wish you a very festive holiday season. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You might also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. And definitely much more to come there in 2024. As always, and even more so because it's the end of the year, huge thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Otto Svensson, who spends a lot of time and effort coordinating and researching our episodes. So we're really grateful for his hard work. And we'll be back in the new year with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time. <laughs>